you dramatically saw, we are going to be looking at the seven churches in Revelation. The letter was written to these seven churches. The message of the entire book was written to them. But we are going to focus on the specific words that are given to the specific churches. So we will be spending seven weeks looking at what the Lord has said to these churches. And this morning we're going to start with the church in Ephesus. And I am going to uh, just seek to see what the Lord is saying to us, to me individually and to uh, you individually and to us as a church as well. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your love. I pray that as we look at the church in Ephesus this morning and the letter, the specific words that you have for that church, that we will also see that they are for us as well. The entire scripture is living, active, and breathing. And we love that you have written the word for us. That we can hear what you say, and that we can live out that which we're called to live out. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will fall fresh upon us, and that as we open up the word this morning, that it will not just be for the sake of information, but also for the sake of transformation. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at the church in Ephesus, and I titled the sermon this week, Leaving Love. And when you talk about this idea of love, often many people want to say, well, I fell out of love. I fell out of love with this person or this thing or that thing, or I fell out of love with Jesus or the church or whatever it may be. But here's the, here's the real deal. You can't fall out of love. Love is a choice. Love is one of those things that you continue to say, I, no matter what, will continue to love you. Continue to love the Lord. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what's going on, from life to death, until we die, I do. This is the reality of what we say is covenantal love. But oftentimes there is a direct abandonment of love or there is a slow drift of love where something or someone becomes more important than the person or thing you're saying that you love. Namely, we're talking about the Lord, where there's a slow drift of something that becomes more important than the Lord, and we begin to drift away and then eventually abandon love. This is exactly what transpired in the church of Ephesus. And often in our own lives, we find this drift as well. Certain things become more important than the Lord. Certain items that we need to go to become more important than coming to church or spending time in the Word of the Lord. We often spend more time doing other things than we do spending time with the Lord. And this is true for the church in Ephesus in a specific way. And we're going to be looking at the, the answer to the question, how can we avoid leaving love? How can we avoid leaving love? But when it, when it comes to the book of Revelation, we love to skip two and three and go right to the, the intense meat of the book of Revelation. We love talking about the dragon. We love talking about the Antichrist. We love talking about the mark of the beast. We love talking about all these different things. But before John went into the future vision of what Jesus had revealed to him, he talked to the church about their present 
problems. Because we must deal with our present problems before we can see forward to the future. Before they were going to understand what was being revealed in the message of Revelation. Before they could grasp the reality of what God was trying to reveal to them, they needed to recognize and own their own present problems. And the same is for you and for me. We must recognize our own present problems. And one of the problems I believe that we as the Western church and Western individuals have done and often do is we leave love. So how can we avoid leaving love? We're going to look at Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. I encourage you to open your scripture as we uh, read this and follow along or follow along on the scripture on the, uh, with the scripture on the screen. Those of you who are at home, you can read on your screen as well. Revelation 2, 1 through 7, the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is an intense letter, an intense word to the church in Ephesus. But before we can fully grasp what is being said to the church in Ephesus, before we can look at what John is saying, what the Spirit through John is saying, we have to have a little bit of background. Now, on Wednesday nights, we are going through the book of Ephesians, and we have talked very specifically about the background. For about 40 minutes, we walked through that. I won't spend that much time on the background of Ephesus. But it's important that you get a couple of clips. The first thing is that this church was founded by Paul. The church in Ephesus was part of his second missionary journey. He planted the church. He went and continued planting churches. But then he, re- he came back to the church in Ephesus, and he spent two to three years in Ephesus. Paul pastored this church for two to three years. Paul himself was there spending time. And then we see in 1st and 2nd Timothy that Timothy was there in the church in Ephesus. So the letter to the Ephesians was written by Paul to the church, but also Timothy was there. And so 1st and 2nd Timothy were written to be read by Timothy to the church in Ephesus. So they spent a lot of time with Paul, with Timothy, and John himself spent a majority of his life, near the end of his life, in Ephesus. 
Ephesus. John, the beloved, was a part of the church in Ephesus. John, the gospel writer, the one who wrote 1st through 3rd John and Revelation, spent time in Ephesus for the majority of his ministry at the end of his life. Many people believe that he was imprisoned from Ephesus, taken and put onto the island of Patmos. This is a man who spent significant time with this church. This was a church who had specific messages over and over and over again. They were a very important part of the church of that day. They were also a port city where they would have access to all kinds of trade. All kinds of stuff was going on in Ephesus, and so a church in Ephesus was a big deal. A big deal. But Ephesus was a city that had lots of crazy stuff. They were a very religious, very sacrilegious, very occult city. They had all kinds of specific religions that were going on, and mainly they were worshiping the goddess Diana or Artemis. And in the priestess job description for Artemis was that they would prostitute themselves and that people would come and worship their goddess through prostitution. This was an intense, disgusting place. But they also had magic. They had witches. They had wizards. They had warlocks. This was a place where the occult was very, very thriving. It was thriving in this city. And we know this because in Acts 19 through 20, we see that when people came to believe in Jesus Christ, this is what John is talking about at first, when they came to salvation, when they came to faith in the city of Ephesus, they burnt millions and millions of dollars worth of occult books. Their witchcraft and wizardry books, their spell books and all of these things, they put them in the middle of the city and burnt them, millions of dollars. And they, they, being a believer in Ephesus, they, people got angry with them because they were beginning to shift and change the entirety of the economy. The silversmiths who made Artemis idols, they were being told, you know, that people aren't buying your idols anymore because they're coming to faith in Jesus. They're throwing away their idols and they're telling other people, don't buy these false idols. They got so angry with Paul in the church that they tried to murder Paul. They tried to put him in a judgment seat and they're like, this guy is ruining our economy. Well, no, it was Jesus. He was flipping things upside down. This church, when they came to Christ, was passionate. They were vigorous. They were excited about preaching and teaching and living the gospel of Jesus. And so when you think of John's gospel, John's letters, you have to understand that in his mind, he probably had first and foremost the church in Ephesus. So when you read 1 John, when he talks about living in spirit and truth, when you see him talking about love and confession, first and foremost in his mind was most likely the church in Ephesus. And so he's challenging them first. And I'm sure these are what he taught at Bible study. These are the issues that he preached. They probably heard the gospel from him, his pen, first. These are important things to keep in the back of our minds because of what John writes to the church in Ephesus. I believe he gives us five pathways to not leaving love. To avoid leaving love, he gives us five pathways. And the first pathway is the pathway of recognition. We must recognize Jesus is the one in power and he is present 
with his bride. Jesus is the one in power, and he is present with his bride. John opens this letter, saying to the church in Ephesus, this message is of him who holds the seven stars. And the seven stars and the seven lampstands are the same thing. It's the church that he's talking about, the seven churches he is writing these letters to. And the Greek word for hold here is kriteo, and it means to hold, retain, seize, or control. And so as he's opening up this letter to the Ephesians, he is very specifically saying, you're not in control of the church. Jesus is. Jesus is the one who has the power. Stop trying to hold on to your own power. Stop trying to do things on your own. And then he doesn't just remind them that Jesus is the one in power. He reminds them of his presence. He says, who, he who walks among the seven lampstands, the church. And the Greek word for among is mesos. And it means in the middle of, with, or in the midst of. You see, the way that the Ephesians were living their lives was more so about themselves and their minds and their, their belief system and the strength that they had in calling out falsehood. And they began to live in an arrogant manner where they stopped remembering the presence of Jesus. They continued to lean further and further and further away. And eventually, as John said, they abandoned their love. They had this sense that they were in control. That Jesus was far off, but they were in charge. That it was up to them to do the work of God. That Jesus is now in heaven. He's no longer present with us. It's our job. I don't know how this happened or how this transpired. The church was most likely uh, founded in 65, and this came 30 years later in 95 when this letter from John was written. Somehow in these 30 years, they drifted away from where they had begun. Jesus warned the church in Matthew 24 that in the end, people will grow cold. Their love will grow cold. The church in Ephesus was proving this word to be true. John here is redirecting the church's focus from themselves to Jesus. That Jesus is in power. That Jesus is in control. And he's present. He wants to be among you. Now, remember, if you go back to John's gospel, John 1, 14, that Jesus dwelt, where? Among us. John probably taught the gospel to the entire church in Ephesus, and they were forgetting the very presence of Jesus. How is this possible? They had Paul. They had Timothy. They had John. This church should have been the church that was all in. This would have been the church that you would expect, expect to last forever. Paul, Timothy, John. See, but they were slipping away from this reality. We need to recognize as well, to live holy, loving lives, we need the power and the presence of Jesus. We need the power and the presence of Jesus. You have no capability in and of yourselves to live a holy and loving life. I know, that's very un-American. 
You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. You don't have the capability. There is nothing you can do to make yourself holy or loving except surrendering to the power and the presence of Jesus in your life. How often do we try to be holy and loving on our own? How often do we try to control our ability to live the gospel life? How often do we get arrogant when we say, yes, I know the truth and I can push everyone back with their falsehood. I'm right and you're wrong. Yes. But it's not about us. Isn't that what the gospel is all about? The truth is that it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Amen? Because if it was about us, that would not be good. The second pathway that we see is the pathway of endurance. Endure the attacks of the enemy and protect the church by upholding truth. Now, he says very specifically it's important that they were holding up truth. It wasn't a bad thing that they were able to find falsehood. This is something he was encouraging them with, that they were enduring the attacks of the enemy, and they were protecting the church by upholding truth. When it came to doctrine, and when it came to orthodoxy, this church was primo. They were number one. They understood it. They had the, the answers to all of the questions. Their doctrinal points were on fire. They were able to just repeat it and tell you what it was. I mean, if you were having this church, it would be like having seminary every time you were spending time with these people because they would be able to recite and tell you all the doctrines of Christianity. And here, he's in, they're encouraged. You know. You know the truth. You know it. And you're able to call out falsehood when you see it. That is a good thing. The church needs to be protected. The church needs to be living the truth. They need to understand the truth. Good job. You've been enduring. But there was something that they were missing. You know, when you look at this church, of course they had right doctrine. I mean, Paul was the king of doctrine. The Holy Spirit filled Paul with the, the passion and the fervor and the words to write about the truth of who Jesus was and what that meant for the church. They had John the Beloved. They had Timothy. They understood truth. That's why their church was like a seminary every time you would go there. But they had something that they were missing. And we'll see what that is in a moment. They understood the truth because they spent time in the word. Spend time in the word of truth to discern what is false. Listen, you and I need the word of God to discern what is true and what is false. So often when we don't know the truth, when we don't understand the word of God, we are easily manipulated. I mean, think about the thousands and thousands of people who go to churches that don't preach the gospel, who don't even open up the word of God because they're illiterate to what the scripture says and they're easily manipulated. It's true. It happens all the time. But if you and I are to understand the truth, if we're able to call out what is false, we need to spend time in the word. We need to understand what scripture says. We have more access in America to the Bible than ever before in history. 
but we also are the most biblically illiterate people because I think we're lazy. I know I'm lazy. I think it's easy to just listen to someone say something rather than opening up your word yourself. Paul encouraged the Bereans. He said, man, I'm Paul preaching the truth. I encourage you. Thank you, Bereans, for opening up the word of God and checking what I'm saying. I mean, this is Paul, and they're opening up their Bible. Is Paul telling the truth? Because, I mean, I mean, imagine that. It's Paul. I don't know about you, but that's huge to me. They were enduring. They were knowing truth. They were spending time on the word. We must do the same. The third pathway is the pathway of love. And this is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. A little bit uncomfortable. We are to continuously check our hearts. Continuously check your heart's level of love for the Lord and your fellow Christian. Continually check your hearts. So, the church in Ephesus was great at orthodoxy. They had the knowledge, but they were living solely from their head and neglected their hearts. Now, this is an important thing that we need to understand in our moment in history because I think we rely too much on our minds to the neglect of our hearts where we are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. They were so excited about truth, the church in Ephesus, that they began to go on heresy hunts. Who is wrong? Have you guys ever felt that way? Like you go on Facebook and someone writes something, and you're like, ha ha, that's wrong. I'm going to tell them it's wrong. Or you're like, I'm going to go on YouTube and find out all these crazy pastors, and then I'm going to write, they're wrong. Heresy hunting. Yes, I know the truth. My doctrine is awesome. I'm so smart. I'm so, I just know the Bible in and out. I know what's right, and I'm going to tell everybody that they're wrong. I'm not going to witness to anybody. I'm just going to find Christians and be like, you're wrong. This is what the church in Ephesus was doing, and they were not doing it in love. Here's what Osborne says. It is clear the Ephesians loved truth more than they loved God or one another. Now you might say, well, the Bible says that God is truth. Yes, but it also says God is love. God is truth. Truth is vital to our lives. But if we just fall in love with orthodoxy and we don't have orthopraxis, which means we're not living out what we believe and we're not loving one another, it's meaningless. They held tightly to orthodoxy but neglected the orthopraxis that the orthodoxy called them to. Their desire to be right caused them to reject those who did not agree with them. They would look at someone and say, you don't believe what I believe about this small, minor area. I know I'm right. Are you even a Christian? They lost their love. There's arguments about all kinds of non-salvific things, like predestination or free will. I have this conversation with a friend of mine all the time, and it's really fun. It's invigorating. It's, it's challenging, right? 
But guess what? That doesn't have to do with salvation. There are some people who believe if you don't believe in free will that you're not a Christian. There are some people who believe that if you don't believe in predestination, then you're not a Christian. You, sh- you would be surprised at how many of these tiny little minor issues cause people to hate and judge and argue all of the time. But Jesus is the king. Those issues that you think are, are right because you say they're right, that's not the king. That actually causes disunity. That causes distraction. If you look at the book of Ephesians, you'll see that Paul was calling the church in Ephesians to love one another even though they were different. There were Greeks and Jews. There were different philosophical understandings. There were different beliefs about food and circumcision. There were different issues that they dealt with. As a Greek, they were dealing with way different things than a Jew would. And so they would have these conversations and arguments, and Paul's like, listen, the church needs to be unified under Christ. Who cares if you're a Greek or a Jew? It doesn't matter. The banner is Jesus, not these other things. Stop allowing it to cause disunity. Wall states this, the catchphrase, first love, is best understood in theological terms and according to the Johenian tradition. In this light, love and truth form the single integral reality of real Christianity. Love and truth form the single integral reality of real Christianity. The proper response to the belief that God is love is concrete actions of love for one another. And we see this in 1 John 4, 20 through 21. Let me illustrate this really quickly with this idea of orthodoxy and orthopraxis, knowledge and action. I usually am the one to take out the trash at the house. Honey, I still know I need to take the trash out. If I say to Hillary, I know I need to take the trash out, but I don't, is she a happy woman? Huh? No. Oh, well, she's like, well, why didn't you take the trash out? Well, I know I need to take the trash out. I I know I do. That's not good enough. The same is true with our orthodoxy. The same is true when we open up the Bible. When we say we know the truth and we don't live the truth, we're just simply saying, I know I need to take the trash out, God. But we're not taking the trash out. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are you catching it? Give me an amen if you're catching it. It's vital and important to understand that our orthodoxy informs our orthopraxis, that it's not just about the knowledge that we have, but the life that we live. This is vital. And here we see that John is looking at this church and saying, you, by just knowing and not living, are in sin. Woo! Now we're touching something that I don't like. If we're told in the Bible, this is what we're to believe, and this is how we're to live, and we're not doing it, guess what? You need to repent, because you're in sin. I'm in sin. This is uncomfortable. But how often do we see many believers who have really good knowledge, who understand the Bible, who go to church, and they hear the truth, and they're like, yeah, that's really good stuff. Woo! Yeah, amen, pastor. But then they leave, and they do nothing with it. When we live that way, John is saying that we're sinning. 
There's sins of commission, things that we do wrong, and then there's sins of omission, things that we're supposed to do that we're not doing. But we often neglect the idea of sins of omission, and we focus from the pulpit in our Bible studies about the sins of commission, because those are easy to wrap our minds around. Those are comfortable. Yeah, I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to be glutton. I'm not going to, you know, whatever. I'm not going to do it. Ooh, so good. Trust me, I fall into the same category. And I'm passionate about this because God has been preaching this to me as I've been preaching it here this morning. I believe John's letter of love in 1 John and his fellowship idea of confession had Ephesus first and foremost in mind. Peterson says, typically what is evident is that they contain the forms of religion after losing the spirit. They are corrected for abandoning their first zestful love of Christ. How also, how also can we know that this is sin and needs to be repented of, which we'll talk about in a moment? 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what it says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, my brain is big. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned as a martyr but have not love, I gain nothing. Nothing. This is a big deal. So the fourth pathway is the pathway of remembrance and repentance. When love is low within, remember, repent, and return to regain your love. Remember, repent, and return to regain your love. He was giving the church in Ephesus a diagnosis. Your love is low. You've abandoned your love. You've walked away from your love of the church and your love of your fellow believer. So you must remember where you were at first. Remember how passionate you were, where you burnt your magic books, where you said, let's not buy any more idols, where you pushed away from the cultural sexual debauchery, and you moved out of that, and you walked in love, and you went and you talked about Jesus, and you shared your faith, and you embraced those who were different than you, and you were in love with Jesus because he changed and transformed you. Go back to that. Remember. And because you've abandoned your love, you must repent. Because you're not living what you believe, that which you say you know, and I know you know because you know the truth, and you've pushed back false people, false prophets. I know you know the truth, but you're not living it at all. You need to repent. This is why every Sunday I pray, Lord, that you will speak to us through your word, not just for information, but for transformation. If someone is preaching and teaching the word of God from the pulpit or from a Bible study, and they're not calling you to live out what they're teaching, they're missing half of the truth. They're missing half of it. We shouldn't just walk away with big brains. We should walk away with big hearts. Love. 
lived out is vital. Remember, repent and return. Turn back to the Lord that you fell in love with. Turn back to the truth of what Jesus has done for you. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see Paul talking to the church. They had become arrogant. They had become to look down upon others. And he caught this. Even then, as he wrote this letter, he said to the church in Ephesus, he said, remember where you were from. 2 verses 1 through 3 talk about how they were fallen and dead in their sins. How they were a mess. He was reminding them, you guys were really messed up people. I mean, you guys were doing crazy nutso stuff. But God, in verse 4, he says, but God. We need to remember where we are from and return back to Christ and remember that we have a purpose, that we have something that God has given us as we look at Ephesians 2.10, that we are God's workmanship created for good works. Good works, not good doctrine, not good understanding, not good knowledge, but good works because what we know should make us live what we know. You see what I'm saying? It's important. Sadly, history shows us that the church in Ephesus lost their lampstand. They could not get out of their own way. They could not get out of their prideful knowledge. Here's what one commentator states. Today, there is no city or church in the Turkish location that was once Ephesus. Islam has been established in this region. How different might the history of that region have been had the church continued to practice its first love? Walk in love, live in love, and be transformed by truth, not just informed by it. How much different would that region be? The church in Ephesus, because they were unwilling to repent, unwilling to remember, unwilling to return, handed that area over to the enemy. May we not do the same. May we not be like the church in Ephesus. May we walk back to our first love. May we not hate those who think differently than us, if they call themselves believers and they believe what Romans says about the wages of sin and they have repented and confessed their sin and turned to Christ as their Lord and Savior, may we not push them away, but embrace them as our brother and sister in love. Walk in love. Unity, not disunity. May we not be like the church in Ephesus and hand the land over to the enemy by failing to walk in love. I told you there are five pathways. We've walked through four. The fifth pathway is the pathway of the Spirit. And we are to seek to listen to the Spirit's voice. Seek to listen to the Spirit's voice. The Holy Spirit is speaking. This is what John says in this passage. Those who have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. Listen up. The Spirit is saying something. Is the Spirit convicting you? 
Is the Spirit convincing you that you've not been walking in love? Is your action of what you believe low or non-existent? Is your love for your fellow man, your fellow brother, your fellow sister in Christ low or non-existent? Repent and return. We must walk in Spirit-empowered living with Spirit-empowered truth. Peterson puts it like this, listening is the common task of the church. Churches are listening posts. We must be people who listen to what the Spirit is saying. We simply need an open Bible with a listening ear and a heart ready to obey. Do you have an open Bible asking the Spirit to illuminate the Word of God to you? Not just for information, but for application. Because true Christianity is Spirit-informed truth that leads to to Spirit-empowered love. True Christianity is Spirit-informed truth that leads to Spirit-empowered love. And it's only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can live out what we've been called to live. The gospel is not just about salvation. It's about transformed lives, new creations, spreading the truth, and being used by God to see other people come to salvation. The Spirit is speaking. Are we listening? Are we hearing what He's saying? Be challenged. Be convicted. It's okay. And when you are, repent. May we be people who seek to immerse ourselves in truth and allow that truth to transform us into lovers of the Lord and one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that we can gather together. Father, even though the word of the Lord pierces my heart, I thank you. I thank you that the word of the Lord is a double-edged sword that cuts through the marrow of my sin, brings me to a place of recognition of where I'm falling short, not for shame, but for confession, repentance, and transformation. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we will hear what you have to say and that we will be transformed believers in you. In Jesus' name, amen.